Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is episode 35, Believe Black Women. Conversations from the YouTube series, We Can't Go Back. About irrevocability Let's burn some bridges Earn some stitches And fight our own way free Cause the rules don't lie But they don't apply To people like you and me Let's start it up now 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 Now they say it's all decided All divided, all laid out and the pushcart man with a three-part plan Can't understand what you're shouting about But when the past they plow The lives allowed are the only roads you can see Just remember who walls were built to fall For people like you and me Let's start it up now 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 Hey, hey, TA community. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of our global community. Please help us spread the word about the podcast and tell a friend or a colleague to subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or any podcast player. Also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I don't know if you've heard, but we also have a pawn shop. And so I recommend you're interested in some merch to go to teachingartistry.org slash pod shop and buy yourself a tea or a mug a hoodie or a tote you know the holidays are coming so uh it's election time early voting has begun in the u.s and uh i you know i live in i live in new york state and early voting um it has 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 started this Saturday, this past week, uh, for the first time ever. Isn't that amazing? Um, election day is Tuesday, November third, and as of the recording, this moment, close to sixty million American citizens have already voted, and that obviously will continue to grow. Uh, I'm pl- I had many plans, um, but I keep making my plans, and ultimately, um, I will I will obviously vote because civic engagement is uber important. There are a lot of issues on the table, um, lots of questions around: Are you better off than now than four years ago? I would I would say in some ways maybe, but certainly not because of this government <laughs> at all. And so I uh, don't think it's a secret who I'm planning to vote for, uh, which is Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Um, but there are also crucial Senate and Congress and state and local elections. And so I'm really encouraging all of you who haven't voted yet to do so. Um, and there's just so much to fight for in terms of racial justice. And while the election and hopefully, you know, the change that is needed will start with this election, but it certainly is not going to be, um, perfect, but I'm hoping that it will help swing the, the pendulum back the other way. And, 
um, you know, there's, there's listening ears on the other side that need to, um, well, we need to continue to, uh, amplify our, our voices and demand change. It's going to be a lot easier to impact and affect change. Um, if there is a change in administration and we need to do so, um, to make a, a racially just and liberated country that will take a lot of time to get to. So in all of that anxiety and, and planning and, and, um, work, all that, um, in the last session or sorry, the last episode I, I talked about, um, self-care and that I'm continuing to work on that. And, um, I'm not only curious about your voting plan, but, um, uh, what is your self-care plan around election, the election itself, um, election day, the day after, maybe weeks after, um, I, this is something that's on my mind. Uh, for example, I'm teaching the day after, uh, uh, and so I'm trying to figure out what, what is going to be the best, uh, how I can create a space, a community space for those students. Um, so anyway, I recommend surrounding yourself by your community and being in community with others. So this is episode 35 and there's a, there's usually we break things up into acts, but this is, this is it. And this, uh, episode is entitled believe black women. And I'm doing this in honor of, uh, my ancestors. I'm doing this in honor of the fact that we have our first, um, uh, candidate for vice president who is a woman and who is, uh, a black woman or a woman of color and um and that I've been listening to black women and I've always believed them but I think that this is a a crucial moment in our time to um be aware of how how strongly um black women really love nurture and care and then are seen um you know statistically are seen as as problems. And, um, so that's what we're going to explore today in, in today's, um, episode. So, uh, over the last summer, uh, sorry, uh, over, uh, starting in the late summer, uh, through the holiday season, the teaching arts podcast has been partnering with creative generation, um, for another video series called we can't go back. This is a weekly interview series focusing on the journeys of artists, educators, and community activists, and their anti-racist and liberatory practices through the arts. And together in our conversations, we're examining, we're interrogating, and confronting racist policies and systems rooted in white supremacist cult, uh, constructs. And these, these particular conversations are supporting my own practice, my own learning, my own, um, internal work. And I am incredibly, incredibly grateful to the guests for their generosity of time and generosity of spirit. And so, uh, head over, head over. If you haven't watched, uh, any of these episodes, there are 12 now. Um, and there will be more coming out, but if you want to watch the episodes, go over to the teaching artistry with Courtney J body YouTube channel, subscribe, and watch the full episodes. Um, so first here, why don't you take a listen to the introduction 
episode between myself and my collaborators, Jeff Poulin and Andre Solomon from Creative Generation. I would like to welcome our guests from Creative Generation, Jeff Poulin and Andre Solomon. So Jeff, can you help us understand what is Creative Generation and what is your role? Creative Generation started just over a year ago as a public benefit corporation that works to inspire, connect, and amplify the work of young creatives who catalyze social transformation and those who are committed to cultivating their capabilities which means we work with young people who are doing amazing creative things all over the world to help their communities. And we work with the artists, educators, and community leaders who support them in those efforts. Our overall goal is to develop thriving communities and a more just world. So we're absolutely thrilled to be joining you in this endeavor to realize some of our own aspirations which we've articulated in our principles around pursuing justice, fostering intergenerational collaborations, empowering youth voice and action, and honoring diversity and enabling radical inclusion. And this project brings all of those things together. And it's really great to be working with you again. Uh, I love working with you and I'm, I'm extremely honored to be able to work with you again on this new venture together. Um, so thanks so much for helping us better understand what creative generation is aiming to, to do. Um, so Andre, (laughs) um, you and I have just met and we're working very closely together and I, I understand that you are an artist and also an arts administrator. So what is your role in this project? So overall, um, kind of my mentality and mantra now is coming to an age of 25 is um, being a minority in the arts world, both as an artist and an arts manager, I really want to provide opportunities for people of color to visualize representation, therefore ownership to actualize their dreams. So hopefully by seeing me, other people of color can see themselves being in this role as well. Um, Within Creative Generation, I'm leading outreach efforts and field-based research to leverage knowledge from communities. However, for this project, I'll be acting as the project manager, dabbling in various tasks from designing to communications to aid in success. I also want to make sure that I'm not um, assuming any sort of role of expert. Uh, And the role of a host always is to listen. Right, Jeff? Absolutely, Courtney. And we're listening too. We're really lucky at Creative Generation to have a big platform much like you with your podcast. And we both used our platforms together throughout the spring with the Keep Making Art campaign and the video series that was associated with that, where we listened to artists and community engagement folks who were using arts and culture to help their communities grapple with the ever-changing circumstances of the COVID-19 pandemic. And Now we've seen those circumstances involve all sorts of implications as communities work to dismantle systems of white supremacy and oppression in the education world and the arts world and everywhere in between. And, you know, Courtney, working together, we uncovered a lot of really cool things. And in the last series, you concluded it 
by speaking about the urgency of the work that underpins this exact series. So can you tell us a little bit about your observations for the urgency for artists, educators, teaching artists, and cultural organizations in this time? Those who are doing the work on the ground needed to be celebrated. And I could see it with my own eyes as uh, somebody who oversees or works with teaching artists and, and actually could not do the work that I do at the levels that I get to do it at without the amazing artists that I work with. But as we know, teaching artists uh, often are the first, uh, they're the most marginalized within the arts community, I would say, maybe because their, their um, experiences are of, of a hybrid of sorts between the arts and teaching or educating. And I want to uplift them. And and so, so many of the conversations that I would have through that pot platform, and then more specifically, more and more recently, with the Keep Making Art um, video series, that we were so, so clearly able to identify the inequities that are, are ever present what's been unearthed with the protests, with the demands that we're seeing coming out, with the, the truth telling, um, the stories, the pain. We're not wanting to re-traumatize ourselves, but we need to put the spotlight firmly where it belongs. And in terms of, in, uh, that's across the nation. And then in terms of the arts, it's, it's that same um, need because uh, until we start really examining, and, and and when I say examine, I really mean interrogate, <laughs> and and instigate, and then ultimately create real lasting action that will impact real lasting change that is so desperately needed in the arts and beyond. That um, you know, I think that that I always wanted to go there, but I, I don't know if I felt comfortable enough to, to really go there because it just felt like, ooh, you might be pushing too far. And in my last episode of We Keep Making Art, I basically said, no, no, we're, we need, I, I've been trying to make change for a long time by highlighting but act, and doing you know little knitting or incremental changes where I felt like I had the power to do so. And what I've seen is many, many artists feeling very, very empowered to speak up, speak out, show up and show out. And I want to be a part of that. And I want to be a part of the change that we know we need. I have another question. So what types of topics do you hope to explore during the series? Practices, uh, liberating practices that uh, the artists or the creatives are, are practicing already big questions that they have for themselves, obstacles, um, maybe even making this uh, an opportunity to, to germinate some good ideas for how to handle or move through uh, any particular challenges. Um, and I hope that it, it sparks a conversation, uh, but the kind of conversation that is, uh, digs. <laughs> um, I'm also interested in exploring... Um, some of the uh, the topics that I'm interested in in learning more about around le uh, revolutionary love, um, as well as um, abolition teaching, 
Um, and the big thing that I, I feel like I keep coming back to, and I've heard multiple times is I, I, earlier I said, you know, I'm not interested necessarily in, in the re-traumatization of people of uh, black indigenous and people of color of their experiences, but that we can find ways to um, process uh, as, w- as well as looking at ways that we can tell stories that are uh, about that diaspora, the African diaspora, the indigenous di- diaspora, as a way of decentering whiteness in our work and, re- and really centering um, those experiences, those stories, figures, um, and practices around how do we get young people or folks in, in different communities that we work with as creatives, as artists, to really feel uplifted uh, as we are moving forward in in our in our existence. <laughs> Those are all really wonderful things. Um, and we at Creative Generation, Andre and I will be working together to document all of the big learnings that are shared through this, to yes. bring them out into the field, to put a spotlight on those promising practices, whether it be radical love, abolitionist teaching, um, or anything that comes up naturally from the work that people are doing today. We're really excited about putting our brains together to share those resources out into the field so that lots of people can learn from them and they don't just operate in one specific scenario in one specific community. We're going to be talking to artists of all different art disciplines and so work that can be, you know, focused in or rooted in dance, um, revolutionary work that could be um, rooted in theater or storytelling or music, that there's a way to learn from all of all of those uh, avenues or pathways, as well as the specific practices um, or ways of, of uh, engaging art making. Um, the other thing that I, I think that uh, we'll be talking a little bit about and I hope that will inform uh, the the viewers and the and the listeners is about how to dissolve or dismantle um, white supremacist constructs within institutions um, and our approaches to institutions that we are not necessarily a, a, a in charge of in terms of school communities <laughs> or school districts or you know other kinds of um, stakeholders that have these constructs inherently embedded um, and hopefully are working through in their own way to make some change. Andre? Throughout history, centuries, um, people have been using the arts as a form of social justice um, and kind of getting their ideas out. And so, you know, this be another iteration in just the perfect time, you know, with everything going on currently, we can't go back. When your time comes, don't postpone it. When others doubt and out, you don't condone it. Truth be told, yourself is your toughest opponent. When your moment comes, grab hold and own it. Never let go. I am so humbled by this video series and the guests themselves. Um, I'm deeply, deeply learning. I'm working. Um, I'm on a journey. And as I said before, these uh, these conversations super dynamic um and they're part of my they're part of my journey they're part of my um internal work actually um so in this episode i wanted to highlight two genius black women whom i hold in incredibly high regard 
and I don't want to gush too much about them. So, cause I want to, I want to really want you to hear their voices and hear what they have to say. So I'm just going to do a quick introduction. Uh, Adia Tamar Whitaker. She is for, featured in episode five and that's called creating the balance between I and we. She is the artistic director of Brooklyn based dance theater ensemble, Ashe Dance Theater Collective. And I also know Adia through working at the, the New Victory. And she's a beautiful human being. And then you'll also hear from Toya Lillard, who is featured in episode seven, and that's called Nuggets of Freedom. She is the executive director of Vibe Theater Experience, and you'll hear um, her talk about that work. Um, and she's, uh, what I love about Toya is um, she is constantly speaking truth to power, um, and she often roots it in her, um, in like quotes, uh, uh, as well as statistics, like real hard data. And, and you can't refute that, but she's really good at being able to, you know, help you see, you know, statistically what's happening to, um, black women, black girls, um, uh, that is, you know, oppressive, uh, instruct, uh, uh, sorry, in, uh, systemic race, racism. And, um, and yet there's this, this, um, intense love that she has. Like she's, she's not just saying it to say it. She's saying, cause she loves us. And that is, um, I think a quite a powerful thing. So here is, uh, the rest of episode 35, believe black women. Hi, Adia. Hey! <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you very much for joining me. Hi, Toya. Hi, Courtney. How are you? Thank you for having me. It is my complete and utter honor, honestly. What is your role in arts and arts education? And what are some ways you embed anti-racism practices into your work? Okay, so I am uh, the artistic director of a Brooklyn-based dance theater ensemble called Ashe Dance Theater Collective, which has existed for 20 years. We also have a sister company in the San Francisco, Oakland Bay area. Um, I am an arts educator that became an arts educator in New York for community works when I was at the Ailey School because an art, a teaching artist didn't show up for a gig and I was in the office as an intern and then they told me, Adia, don't you dance? Don't you teach? And then they put me in a car, took me up to the Bronx and that's how I actually became a teaching artist in New York. Um, I didn't realize that you could, that's something that you could do to make a living. I just... You know, I, I was always around teachers. I had amazing mentors and teachers. Um, I'm from San Francisco, California. And so I was an explainer at the Exploratorium. And so I had amazing mentorship from working there as a teenager. And so I was always around the arts and I was a, like a dancing youth. And so the, it just was a natural progression of my life. So I am also a dancer for, I, did, I, I think my niche is uh, I dance for a lot of spoken word artists. Um, most, I guess the most renowned one is Mark Bamuti Joseph, who's now uh, works at The Reach. He's my homeboy. And so we've worked together since the beginning of our early 20s and I'm 44 yeah. now. So um, 
yeah, I work with spoken word artists as a performer. I just, uh, a regular just dancer, contemporary. Um, I'm also, um, uh, I've studied Haitian dance since I was 18 years old. So I also teach master classes in Afro-Caribbean Haitian dance. I travel to different parts of the African diaspora and I study the dance in cultural context, performance context, and um, the history of revolutionary politics in the places that I go to. And so, um, I, you know, I follow in the footsteps of Catherine Dunham and Pearl Primus. I, you know, I, I just got my MFA in dance from Holland University, um, where I just, I needed, I started to take my work into the scholar, the realm of scholarship as well, as opposed to um, it, be, um, it being me out here hustling in this art game, if you will. Um, so that's what I do. And I think that I work with, you know, as an artist, I'm, I'm really into the concepts that shape tradition as kind of a way to um, open space for people to learn about each other. So even in traditional dance, right, traditional dance, and I'm speaking specifically about um, dance from Haiti or my family's from South Carolina. So traditional dance, uh, ring shouts that come from South Carolina, any kind of African diasporic folklore is survival music, right? It's the music that we use to heal ourselves and survive. And so sometimes when you are performing or you're teaching these things, people have the tendency to be like, no, I don't understand. They're singing songs in a language I don't understand or they're doing something in a language I don't understand. But if you focus on the concept that shapes tradition, if you focus on the life cycle things, birth, death, love, um, harvest, any kind of life cycle thing, this is the way that I feel that audiences have been able to enter my work as a traditionalist and also somebody that is very proud to be in the gray area of folklore because the traditional way is the traditional way. It has a specific set of rules and there's the contemporary world and I'm kind of in between those two worlds where I've I've um, acknowledged myself as the folklore and the story that's still being told as a person of African descent that's living and surviving in the world today, as opposed to it being like, these are the traditional dances we did then. I now look at how these traditional dances exist today in our culture. How do the costumes look if these characters were thrust forth into 2020 or 2019? Like, how do they look now? How are we using this language now? Because it can't just stay back then. And that's what prevents young people from becoming involved in folkloric traditions because they'd be like, oh, that's what the old people do. But I'm mm. like, no, you do it too. That's why you got skeletons all over your clothes. Why are you thinking you're walking around with all these ancestors all over you? Like, it's not an accident that that's not, that's not just a fashion. There's actually some, we call it something in folklore. So I think making those connections, that was one of my really big things when I started teaching was making the connections between the past and the present for young people because they were nobody was coming behind me when I was young and I was teaching there was not a no, new group of young people that were coming to get the folklore and push it forward they just were they weren't interested they were like we like in hip-hop but I'm like hip-hop is folklore let's go back to Africa and start at the jolly and let me show you how you know, so that they're making these connections as they grow into the teachers and art makers and dance makers and scholars so that's been a lot of my work, you know, growing up in San Francisco, you grow up in a community of arts and activism. So sometimes when I'm on these platforms and people are like, how do you integrate arts and activism? And I'm like, well, there's really no separation between the two. It's not like some one happens and the other doesn't, you know? And sometimes, you know, as narrative dancers that 
that embody this kind of art and activism and encapsulate it, you get you um, you don't get access to certain uh, resources because you're seen as like, oh, that's narrative dance. That's not abstract. Like there's this division between like the narrative art world and then the abstract. But to me, it's all somebody's story. So there's no need to separate. Currently, I am executive director of Vibe Theater Experience, a Brooklyn-based arts nonprofit organization that produces original theater, music, and media created, produced, and performed by Black girls, young women, and gender expansive youth. Uh, I also teach theater at the New School and CUNY, and I'm a proud board member of the New York City Arts and Education Roundtable, as well as the Downtown Brooklyn Arts Alliance. Uh, as an artist, um, a lifelong artist, um, I'm really proud, um, most proud most recently of uh, being a member of the collective Black Women Artists for Black Lives Matter. Uh, and I'm also really proud to host a weekly Instagram series entitled Black Women Are Reliable Sources with my dear friend, Robin Walker Murphy, who is executive director at Groundswell Community, Community Mural Arts Project. Um, Vibes anti-racist practices are really rooted in our mission, uh, which is to hold and cre create and hold space for Black girls and young women to speak truth to power and really um, talk about the ways that real life policies, practices, procedures, and perceptions have adversely um, affected them. So they're talking about uh, homophobia, transphobia, um, colorism, sexism, racism, all within the context of their original art. And they're advocating for policy changes that will not only improve the quality of their life, but will make life better for all Black girls and uh, women, not just in the United States, across the world. We know that um, there's been a lot of research and we have a lot of statistics to back up the uh, really horrible conditions that um, Black girls and young women are forced to grow up in, right? And that, um, for example, Black girls are six times more likely to be suspended from school nationwide in this country for the same offenses as their white counterparts, which robs many girls of an education. We also have a problem with Black girls having a girlhood. Um, as we know from the study, girlhood interrupted that Black girls are perceived as being less innocent, uh, not in need of protection. Um, they are not believed or trusted, uh, which mirrors um, the same sort of perceptions and treatment that Black women have um, in this country. So our anti-racist practices are rooted in our attempts to save our own life, uh, our attempts to stay alive, uh, to speak up without uh, fear of retribution, and to uh, invite folks in to join us um, in the fight, all through theater. Uh, and I uh, come to this work you know, through my own lived experience as a Black woman. Mm -hmm. um, and I come to this work um, with memories of girlhood and being ready to lead. You know, um, I always joke on my Instagram account that, um, you know, I, you know, I look at all my school pictures and I look like little Oprah because that's, you know, who I thought I was naturally, even, you know, from the age of four, it's just like very um, clear that I was a leader and, um, 
knowing what it feels like to uh, feel like a leader, but be treated like a problem, like you're a problem. Uh, so for example, this new report, Ready to Lead, by uh, the organization uh, Girls Leadership Institute, notes that uh, black 48% of Black girls see themselves as leaders, and that's the largest of any ethnic group. Uh, and isn't it ironic that this is the very group that we treat um, as the opposite of that. We uh, approach Black girls from this deficit model, and they can intuit and feel it. Uh, and so their artwork has really been centered around changing perceptions and also saying, um, this impacts my life, this impacts the quality of my life, and ultimately how long I may live. And so now we, um, it, particularly now, we've got all this information to sort of back up what they've been saying. Uh, and so as an organization and in my own life and work, it's been about creating safer, braver spaces for people to tell their stories and to invite others in to community, um, really coming at it from an abolitionist perspective um, where we are building community um, for the work of liberation. How did you embark on embedding anti-racist practices within your work? Part of the reason why I wanted to travel around the world and into the diaspora is because I would see children, like just what you're saying, children that were like three years old, like dancing to drums, they understood drum language, mm -hmm. you know, and I knew that I, that was something that was missing in my heart, you know, because, you know, when the drum was taken away in North America, it was like ripping the heart out of a person. Right. And if you take the heart out of a person, they can't do they they're like dying. Mm. And so the fact that African Americans were able to survive, although the heart had been ripped out of their people is extraordinary. And so when you return the drum to our communities, it's an act of revolution. You're putting mm -hmm. the heart back into the community, whether it's pencils knocking on tables or it's through beatboxing or the physical African drum. But that was such a strategic and very smart move. Like slavery was brilliant. You know what I'm saying? It was very well crafted mm -hmm. because that was a brilliant move to like take the heart. Like how do you kill a person? You just snatch a vital organ out. It's important to understand that many, many people not even, I'm not, this is not as simple as white and black. It's nothing is ever that simple, right? It is about believing in things you can't see. And when you believe in, if so many people are believing in something that other people cannot see, mm. then it becomes dangerous to the people that are looking at them. Like, we don't understand what they're doing. We can't, uh, we can't decipher it. We can't find out a way into it to manipulate them through it. So we have to take it away. Right. And so I think that there's so many people on the earth and that come from people and that are people that believe in things that we can't see and have faith in things that we can't see, you know, and that's that's that is an important um, part of the work I think I've been moving towards in in terms of like embodiment work, because, you know, um, I, I've been, there's this like trend in mindfulness and mind body centering. And so as a, as a mover, as a contemporary dancer, when I step into these spaces, there's all this talk and jargon. And I, I always find myself feeling like something's wrong with me because I'm like, I, 
can't get to my synovial, like I just got in the room. How am I gonna get to my synovial fluids and balance the bowl of soup on my sacrum? And I'm thinking about who's gonna pick up my kids. Okay, my husband's gonna pick up the kids. Okay, we gotta eat. I have all these things that just to get me in the room was so much work. So mm. for people, and I really was feeling the privilege in that space because people, I mean, the dancers, they were just, and it had nothing to do with younger and older. It was just, whether you know how buried you were and i felt like i was so far away from okay Adia, there's a snake in your back there's an owl in your face and i was like there is a snake in my back why do you say there's a snake in my back and they'd be like well in eastern philosophy and i'd be like but what about your norse folklore like i know my african snakes i know where my like why don't you're still going to someone else's culture and you're not taking in the work so i i had to make my own thing because i was like i'm gonna do my own embodied physiology of yoruba folklore and dahomey folklore and congolese folklore like because that's where i'm coming from and unfortunately in the mindfulness world and the mind body centering world like i'm not shutting my eyes and putting my feet flat on the floor because i don't know if i can trust you and that's real like all, you know, some, I'm not there. I'm not going to just walk in and <sighs> ding, and we're going to go. That's not where I'm at. I've had to keep on my survival masquerade all day to navigate this society. And now I walk into a room. I was trying to figure out how I could get people like me, you know, anybody that was buried underneath life to the place where we could balance bowls of soup on our sacrums and mm -hmm. owls in our face and uh, as a child growing up in Houston, uh, in a very creative family, a theater family, uh, and also experiencing what is now known as misogynoir at a very young age, uh, I always uh, say that, you know, intersectionality means that some of us have this clairvoyance where we can see, touch, taste, smell, feel, hear things that others either cannot or won't. Uh, and so I was keenly aware being at the intersection uh, with regard to race and gender and the ways that I was treated differently uh, for being a girl, the ways that I was treated differently uh, for not being light-skinned um, in my family, which um, in parts of my family was just like an offense, the ways that um, opportunities were given uh, to others really uh, what people called a hypersensitivity was an acute awareness of my positioning and an acute awareness of the ways that power was distributed and that I was always getting passed by and thinking about all my school pictures of me being dressed up like, hey, y'all, don't forget, I'm here, I'm a leader, don't forget, I'm your girl. And constantly being told to be quiet, don't be so loud, sit down. If you say it differently, maybe people would hear you. Um, uh, really very early on deciding that I was gonna dedicate my life to theater, of course, which is a place where I felt most comfortable and to uh, helping to create these spaces, um, these pockets uh, where we can get what I call our nugget of free. What are some concrete actions arts institutions can take to restructure and dismantle oppressive systems and policies that uphold white supremacist constructs. It's important to create 
situations where people, before we go into these, you know, these professional developments or these meetings, the, these anti-racism meetings, people have to arrive uh, in a space and kind of be neutralized so that they can begin to work. You see what I'm saying? Because everybody, like I was saying before, everybody is who they are. They come to a space and then your supervisors are saying, okay, now we're going to talk about anti-racism in the classroom or in teaching artistry. And you're like, huh? Like, who are these people? Like, are they really down to work? You don't know how down everybody is. You don't know everybody's education in this area. So there's a lot of judgment that kind of happens in that moment. And so um, I feel like uh, there's a step missing in, in our education, our, our, our trying to do this anti-racism work. And the, the first step I feel is for us to meet um, physically and uh, psychologically and kind of spiritually in a space as humans before going to the work and not just walking into a room, but like you, you're not going to give anything to anyone that's not giving something to you, right? So mm -hmm. if there's a space where you can, where everyone can receive and then give, you know, and then maybe that will open everyone op up a little bit more to giving so that we can get into the work. Um, the other thing I would say is that, you know, um, honesty, like it's so hard for people to be honest, you know, and it's going to take a certain level of being uncomfortable and honest for us to move forward because otherwise we're just going to reorganize all of the systems that we're fighting up against. We're just gonna create these like neoliberal reorganizations of like capitalism, patriarchy and white supremacy because we're all trying to, oh, I don't wanna hurt your feelings. And I think in these processes that we have to know, our feelings are going to be hurt. We're going to be called out, all of us, right? And we're gonna be uncomfortable because and when, you know, when, you, when, you, when you labor, right? I've had the opportunity, the blessing to give birth to two children at, in my home, right? And so you pray in your laboring. It really is energetically. You got to be like, I'm going to somewhere. We hope that at the end of this labor, we're going to have this child, right? But through that labor, you have to push and scrape and scream and bark and all of these things with the hope that there's going to be this okay. child, right? But sometimes we don't end up with this child, right? We scrape, we screw, we don't. And so we end up with a new ancestor. So whether we end up with a new ancestor or a new baby, we have to be committed to being uncomfortable, right? Not having the money that we need, right? Not having, so that we can all get to a place where everybody has what they need. So that scrape and that uncomfortable is really hard for American people. You know, it's hard for me, like this pandemic has really like, I've been like, okay, it's me, right? Today's the day that I'm uncomfortable. Today is the day that's hard for me. But I, so if I say that, if I say today is the day that is hard for me, I'm uncomfortable and I know that it is my day. I'm, I know that this is my day. It may be my week. It may be my month. Mm -hmm. But I know if I'm down to work and I'm around other people that are saying the same things and doing this, the work that it's going to take for all of us to become, and it's hard work and it may not even happen in our lifetimes. But I think that, you know, where we are naturally in the world, it's beginning to happen because it has to. Like the, the nature is forcing us to work. Education exists everywhere. And our, we put such a heavy value on academic papers, freedom papers, that these papers, you have these papers, this means you know something, right? It means you read a lot of books. 
it doesn't mean anything landed with you and then now you have you are going to be uh, do amazing things it means you read a lot of books mm -hmm. and so the va valuing education that doesn't look like um what it's been taught to look like right because we know this we know that like I said, there, was, there were scholars and farmers and scientists and mathematicians that were stolen from Africa to come cultivate this land here in the United States. They weren't just people walking around not knowing things. They were scholars and phenomenal, phenomenal human beings that were embodied and connected to the earth as well as scholarship. And so it's important to then, this is, this is a time in history where we are going to have to reassess values. What is valuable? Like, is, is money more important or are your relationships more important? Because money is not even real. Even in terms of getting my MFA, they love to throw this Audre Lorde quote, uh, you cannot rebuild the master's house with the master's tool quote, right? So I was like, yes, I'm gonna make some new tools. I'm not gonna use the master's tools. But then when you try to make your, you make your own tools and you start to rebuild, the people are like, oh, you really did that? Like, oh, you really were, well, we was just, we supposed to say that, but that's not really, you like can't get anything done if you don't use the master's tools because they don't even recognize your tools. Mm. My thing is like people like me and teaching artists, artists, you know, people that share this lineage of artistry that are artistic people, like they don't, our tools aren't even recognized. You see what I'm saying? And so until the, the it's, a, it's a tricky thing, because I'm like, is it that the master has to recognize our tools in order for our tools to be valued and then able to be used? Because that's whack. So if I have my tools and me and all the homies have our tools and we're saying like, look, this is a tool, we can do that. But the master never acknowledges or sees value in our tools, then what, then how do we, so then that means we go and we have to separate ourselves. But every time somebody separates themselves, you know, Tulsa. And whiteness is embodied, right? right? Whiteness is a construct, blackness is a construct, right? And it was developed in order to create inferiority and superiority and inferiority, right? And so when you have people, people that migrate to this country, like really you only have two things you can step into. You can be white or you can be black. Like you wanna be Filipino, you wanna be, you know, Croatian, but really do you wanna be like them or do you wanna be like them? So whiteness and blackness are, you know, somebody made those concepts up and then after that we all believed in them. So that's the thing is if we make new tools, how do we get people to believe in them the way that they believe in whiteness and blackness? That's, that's what we have to do. We have to create something that's gonna make people believe in the new tools. Power shifting means that some folk are going to be uncomfortable. Some folk are going to need to shift out of their organizations in order to make room for equity, for real equity. Mm. Um, and coming from, a, from an abolitionist framework means that we don't cancel folk, um, we hold them accountable, which means that there is the opportunity for them too to contribute uh, to this movement. That means that we are calling people in to community and saying, I need you, so I'm duty bound to let you know the ways that you're causing harm. 
too often we look to the very people who have been harmed for, to, to solve all the problems, right? Um, there's a popular saying, you know, the solution's gonna come from the people who are experiencing it. Yes, and those people need rest, so don't put them to work. If they tell you what the solution is, believe them. Don't make them work harder. Um, and lastly, with regard to Black women's leadership in New York City, as we all know, our field has been built on the backs of Black women's labor and genius and creativity. Uh, many of whom went unrecognized, um, not credited, and certainly underpaid. Uh, there needs to be truth and reconciliation around that with cultural organizations um, really uh, being able to name and um, acknowledge the ways that they have um, created barriers to um, change. There's a real problem with hiring Black women teaching artists. I'm just going to say it. Um, I personally have trained more than 10 or 15 who would be fabulous at any institution. I come out of Lincoln Center. I come out of NYU. I, I have the pedigree. I know what's up. Um, it is not about them not having the skill set. It's about anti-Blackness. So that when teaching artists of color are engaged, um, Black women teaching artists are the ones that are seen like Black girls as a problem particularly when they speak up about inequities, particularly when they ask for um, resources and support um, going into a public school system that we know is deeply racist. It's the most segregated in the country. Um, so similarly to, you know, Black women's leadership being undersupported and underfunded, the very teaching artists whose genius um, a lot of cultural institutions um, bread and butter rests upon, um, is undervalued and not even noticed. So there's a lot of work to be done to institutionalize um, the respect that people say that they have for the field and for the work that's being done, the foot soldiers, the people who are actually touching lives and working with these kids. There needs to be a reckoning about what type of kids some of these cultural institutions are equipped to work with, yeah? Um, many. Um, multi-million dollar cultural organizations um, are afraid to work with the kids who need them the most and really target um, the kids who are going to provide the results that they have already forecasted without asking them, to provide the optics that they need in order to fundraise, and who they think won't be a problem. We work with the girls who are a problem. We lean into what people describe as a problem and a deficit because we know that our field is built upon this idea of white saviorism, so is social work, whereby we have to see our, our, the human beings that we work with as a problem, as deficient, as less than, so that we can say that our, our, whatever we delivered to them gave them their humanity. When you dare to say that you're working with whole genius human beings, then you become the problem. And we've got to reckon with that We've got to admit that that's the model and really forge uh, something else out of it so that it's going to require some, you know, uh, blood and fire and smoke so that there is a real um, awakening and, and, and that something new emerges that is uh, real and approximates what this country looks like. That takes me to our next question, actually. What would you say is a liberated and racially just world? What does that look like? It looks like reparations. 
It looks like truth and reconciliation. It looks like whatever post-capitalism is going to be. But if we center the needs of those who are at, at you know, at the, who have the least, we're going to help ourselves. And we see that over and over and over again. And leaning into that means that we got to do the work and look inside and uh, reconcile with our own the harm that we may have caused, the harm that has been caused to us. I'm inspired by Penumbra Theater Company, which is now Penumbra Wellness uh, Center. Yeah. So these theater companies are recognizing, like ours, that the folk that we're engaging, the artists that we're working with, are hurting. Um, our folks need therapy. Our folks need yoga, um, something that we've institutionalized already. Because these young women are, in speaking truth to power, are saying, now you're duty bound to. We're duty bound to heal by reparations. That's what I mean. I mean, putting really investing real dollars in repairing the harm. I want to thank you all for watching Teaching Our Shoe with Courtney J. Body. And as Andre said, we won't go back. We can't go back. Onwards. Thank you for listening to episode 35 of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. Believe Black Women. Join us next time for more conversations from We Can't Go Back. This podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the creative content manager. John L. Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the brand new pod shop at the top of the page for merch. Twitter us at TA underscore artistry. The gram at teaching artistry with CJB. And now on YouTube, check out the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body channel and watch the latest video series, We Can't Go Back. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Ooh.